cliffcentral.com. If you give someone an MIT pen, you know, in small studies, we've found that people perform better on that on a test using an MIT pen. It's like that constant suggestion that you are smart enough to be at MIT, you know, and like that, that's branding. Like MIT is nothing special about those letters. So in the lab, a nocebo experience is you expect more pain and someone doesn't, you know, gives you the exact same pain you got before and then, but you feel more pain. You rate it stronger. Um, and, and this applies to pretty much anytime you have negative expectations. And I, I, in the book, I sort of expand this looking at, um, sort of superstition. And eventually I even get myself cursed as a way to understand like how your expectation would change your experience. Hey guys, welcome back to the brain and brand show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and you've chosen a show where I have a very simple goal. I want you to get more out of your brain and to understand other people's brains in order to help you grow your influence. And hopefully you'll use your influence for good. This will be a very short intro because I have a super exciting conversation to bring you with science writer, biologist Eric Vance, the author of Suggestible You. Eric and I will be discussing how expectation is created in the brain and what that means for your personal and organizational influence and leadership goals. Eric has written for the New York Times, National Geographic, Scientific American, and he lives in Baltimore now, but previously in Mexico City for seven years and worked across Latin America and Asia. This conversation will inspire you to use story and expectation in your influence strategy. Enjoy. Eric Vance, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. You've researched the intelligence of dolphins. Are dolphins yeah. intelligent enough to be president of the United States? I uh, would, two years ago, I would have said no. <laughs> so, this year, I, maybe, I don't know. Uh, there's certainly a lot in common. Uh, dolphins are really interesting animals. You know, if you research, if you look at them long enough, you, you, uh, you realize both how intelligent and kind of human-like they are and also how animal-like they are and really, you know, unhuman-like. And it's, um, the person who actually introduced me to this, to that world was actually a, a SETI researcher, uh, uh, someone who looks for extraterrestrial life. And I think that's fitting because dolphins aren't, they're not human. They're, it's really hard to say what they are. They're, they're really an alien life in, in a lot of ways. There's wow. something so different from us. Wow. So yeah, they're crazy smart, but they're also animals. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time <laughs> ping-ponging back between those two things, which I guess, uh, at least the second half might apply to the president. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Last year, I was in the science section of my favorite bookstore, and I came across your book, Suggestible You. I began reading in the bookstore, planning to scan it and put it back, to be honest, <laughs> thinking it was just <laughs> another helpful book about the placebo effect. I was like, you know, but I couldn't put it down. And as I read further, I knew I had to buy it, which I did and glad I did. What struck me early in the book was your relationship with faith, faith and science. Share with me a bit more about the moment where you realized that um, that you were, you know, you were moving a bit in that space. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I mean, I started at a different spot than a lot of people. I was raised in a religion called Christian Science, which uh, relies on faith as a form of healing. Christian scientists, a lot, a lot of faith healers in, in the world, Christian scientists are somewhat unusual in that they only rely on faith. So they don't go to doctors generally. Um, and uh, it's a big decision in Christian science if you want to go to a dentist. Uh, and um, I, uh, 
it was a, you know, it was something where you really have to be committed to that. I mean, and, and in my teens, you know, you're not committed to anything. And so I, I was really sort of drifting away. Um, but it was on a, on a very steep mountain called, um, Lost Arrow Spire in, uh, in Yosemite National Park. Uh, I'm very into rock climbing and it, we were sort of several thousand feet up, uh, up this very thin needle, you know, with ropes and clipped into a sort of overhanging rock and a, a lightning storm came in and, um, you know, <laughs> nothing sh- shows you the power of God like, like a lightning storm. I mean, just so overpowering. You can't describe how overpowering and, and frightening that is, especially when it's sort of hitting nearby peaks. And, um, you know, I, I reached out to, to God at that moment and it was just like, you know, help me. And, um, what was interesting to me, you know, and you make, this whole stuff is so personal, but for me, I didn't hear anything back. And maybe I had, maybe my expectations were too high, you know, that I expected to hear something, but, I just had this moment, you know, and I actually survived. So someone might argue, you know, maybe God saved me. But um, I just had this moment where I said, you know, I, I just I didn't hear anything. And that that might mean something. And for me, it was a very important moment. I mean, everyone it's you know, it's also personal in terms of, of how you interpret your life in terms of faith. And for me, that was sort of my moment where I said, I'm, I'm going to look elsewhere for explanations and how the how the world works. And so I. I started experimenting with all kinds of drugs, you know, um, Tylenol, uh, you know, mm. aspirin, yeah, yeah. Bayer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and, and I, I was kind of out, but I was always curious about what I had seen and what I had experienced when I was a kid. And so that's really where a lot of this book comes from. It's sort of a, a, a desire for me to understand because, you know, I healed myself all the time when I was a kid and I wasn't crazy. And my family wasn't crazy. Something was happening. And that's what really drives this book is what was that thing? Not, you know, take out all the woo-woo and just figure out what was going on. And it turns out there's a lot of interesting explanations for what I experienced. How does expectation actually physically influence the brain? Yeah, great question. This, you know, everyone who writes a book thinks their book is like everything, right? Like the whole world. This literally (laughs) is Everything like yeah. expectation. If you had to boil your brain down to a single function, and this isn't me saying this, this is you know experts in artificial intelligence, and I mean this has been known for about fifty years. It has one job, and that is prediction. It is mm. a prediction machine, yes. and that's essentially what your brain does. And it makes small ones, you know, like all throughout your life, you have a baby. I have a baby, and he's he's making all he's trying to figure out how to make these predictions. You know, like what happens when I drop something. And, and we have these predictions that we've built up over our life. Little ones like gravity, you know, if I drop something, it'll fall. Big ones like, uh, you know, are the Cubs going to win next year or will the hunting be good in the plains? Um, but this is like what our brain does is it just looks for shortcuts, you know, uses predictions to look for shortcuts and figure out how the world works. Take the past, apply it to the present to predict the future. That's, that's what our brain does. And so what when you start messing with those predictions, you you alter fundamental properties in the brain. Like this is not this is not political leaning. You know, like political leanings. You know wh- how that works in the brains. Like people study that. That's really interesting. But like expectation predictions. That's deep. That is fundamental to what our brains do. I mean, if you look at a planaria, a little flatworm, like it's kind of what they're doing too. You mm-hmm. know, like this is basic. And so what it 
placebo effect does, and a lot of the things I write about, is you are starting to change those fundamental expectations by tricking yourself. So when you take a pill and you think it's a, a, a you know, a, a, a painkiller, um, and it's not, you're playing with an expectation, with a machinery that is very basic in the brain. And, and so your brain kicks in with some very powerful effects. One of those is to release actual opioids onto itself so that it feels what it expects. Because your brain would rather change reality than change an expectation. Yeah, wow. If it can. Yeah. If it can, it, like if it, if, and that's, I think, what your friend, the shoe store, was seeing is like, if it can fudge enough so that expectation meets reality, it will, rather than changing the, the expectation. Because once those things are set, you know, the brain doesn't want to reevaluate the world. It wants to make the world fit its expectations. Now, yeah. you can take that and apply it to all kinds of things. And, and that's sort of what I do, and that's how it applies to marketing as well. Got it. You know, it's interesting. When I first came to South Africa, one of the things that shocked me, you know, was, you know, you know, after a while I was single here and, you know, in the Cape Town community, which you've lived in Cape Town, you spent some time there, you know, there's this community of colored people and colored people are people who have this sort of history where hair was really, really important. Where in, huh. a, in the same family, if your hair was straighter, you would go to a white school. If your hair was really curly and thick, you'd go to a black school. So hair is, was just like this tool to help you navigate society. Uh, and so when my hair is really short, I look more white. When it's long, I look black. I would often meet young women in the club, and they'd really like me. And then I'd let my hair grow out, and then it's like, oh, no. It was extraordinary to see how when the expectation of what my hair may do to their child <laughs> would completely yeah. turn them off, their whole body would start shaking. So I'm interested in how when 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 they physically saw my hair and how it could create an expectation for their progeny, how what actually happened in their head. Wow, that's really, you know, now you're playing with two really deep fundamental processes in the human brain, <laughs> expectation and, and reproduction. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is a really crazy thing. And, and I haven't, like, this is, this would be a really great thing for me to dig into. Um, I know that, uh, my, my wife used to work in the Dominican Republic and a lot of uh, immigrants who leave the Dominican Republic think of themselves as white. And when they come to the United States, they learn that they're black. And in the DR, they're white, you know, and, and it's and it's like that changes, you know, how you see yourself, you know, that um, changes so many expectations, like those big expectations yeah. that are like, you know, what your future is and, and how you act. Um, and uh, that so we have a limited what we know is that expectations when they change your brain can very quickly tap into chemicals that it has on hand, uh, like dopamine, like serotonin, um, like uh, 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 cannabinoids, which you might recognize from marijuana. Yeah. Like we've got those in our head already, and your brain can drop them out when it wants them in order to make things sort of make sense. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is we don't have a complete list. I mean, we don't know everything that your brain can tinker with. So, um, you know, and we really don't know what attracts a woman to a man. I mean, we definitely know that there are some very subtle pheromones that may or may not be, uh, we may or may not be able to sense, you know, and, and whether or not your brain, you know, like you, you smell a pheromone, you know, you feel attracted to someone. Uh, we may not be able to smell these pheromones, but, you know, it's still, we're still trying to figure that out. But, you know, whether or not your brain would then, 
change the way it perceives that, you know, all those signals it's getting from that person when it realizes this person is darker than they thought. I mean, it's just too subtle. Like, there's uh, so many chemicals I could think of, you know, but we know that there is some sort of chemical change that causes, you know, her body, who she is to shift when an expectation of what she thought was happening, when that expectation changed, put, something changed. I would put money on that. I mean, unfortunately, and I had a, a placebo researcher tell me, you know, we have really, you know, we have really lousy placebos in the laboratory. You know, I mean, you can only do so much. You know, you can put someone in pain and you can see if you can make that pain go away. To look at something like attractiveness, um, Wow, yeah, that would be tough. At least to figure out the chemical underpinnings, that would be sure, tough. Sure. But there are a lot of studies looking at the subtlety of facial recognition. And I mean, when it comes to like looking at someone's face and evaluating a person's face, evaluating if they're in pain or if they're attractive, our brains are really good at it. I mean, it's most of, you know, what, what their sort of the higher functions are made to do. So, uh, I, um, yeah, when you when you bring in something like an expectation that a, a person is a certain, you know, looks a certain way, has or even something simpler like money. You know, if someone was to find out that someone was not as rich as they thought they were or yes. that there was, um, you know, or that they weren't as beautiful in some way, you know, in some other setting. Uh, how would that affect the chemical process in their brain? No question it would. Um, I don't think we're ready yet to say exactly which ones but there's no question that there would be chemical changes going on um uh, and the question is could you use that to your advantage could you make yourself continue to be attractive <laughs> uh just by you know by these subtle cues <laughs> yeah well, exactly and one way we can do that obviously is with brands brands allow us social triggers and opportunity which i want to get to you know sort of like the heart and the meat of you know why i wanted really wanted you on the show is you know, how can brands do that? I mean, would you argue that the brands that are the most successful are the ones that manage the consumer's expectations, the one that gets the brain moving towards what they want them? So, for example, you know, you find in basketball in America, it's a massive, you know, thing that when a young person is wearing Nike over Adidas, they feel better. And, you know, there have been studies to show that they perform better. You know, people, you know, um, you know, people wearing Michael Jordan shoes, sort of, it's like in clothed cognition, their, their brain starts to feel the, the properties of Michael Jordan and may, they may not fly, but they feel like they're closer to him than they were before they put the shoes on. Yeah. Um, and this is an area that, um, that marketing placebos, as they're often called, that is is it's getting some attention, um, and un unfortunately, not as you know, a lot of it happens behind closed doors, and uh, and so you know, we have limited picture of, of how much how much is actually out there, but um, but I mean, it, it's so widespread. I mean, it's not just Michael Jordan's. It's if you give someone an MIT pen, you know, in small studies, we've found that people perform better on that on a test. Using an MIT pen, it's like that constant, you know, suggestion that you are smart enough to be at MIT, you know, and like that, that's branding. Like, MIT, there's nothing special about those letters. But it's, it's crazy. Branding. I have to say this, uh, Eric, you know, I, 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 very, I did a diploma in neuroscience at MIT, and whenever I wear my MIT shirt in South Africa, it means nothing. I walk through people. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm in the States, like when I was home a couple months ago or a few weeks ago, you know, 
like elderly people would stop me almost in like reverence. It was weird. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to yeah. throw that in. <laughs> There'd be a whole other study for like, you know, going to clubs and picking up on women with an MIT shirt. Yeah, exactly. Like that, <laughs> that could go, I could go either way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, and, and, and one of the most interesting thing, you know, elements of, of sort of creating expectation, I think, is like the classic expectation generator, which is price tag, right? Mm. Like, so that's the great thing about marketing is, is you have this like one tool, which is the price tag that can have a huge effect on people's expectations, right? Yeah. I mean, if something's expensive, it really should be better. And we, we all know, you know, we all know sort of, on the surface that this isn't true. Like just because something's expensive doesn't mean it's better. Um, but, uh, I mean, you were just saying you bought my book, my book's a lot more expensive in South Africa than it is in the States. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make it any better. But, uh, uh, there are a lot of experiments that look at how that affects people's experience. Now, um, I'm looking forward to seeing these things really get explored more, but, um, there's a fair amount of evidence, I think that, you know, if you buy an expensive bottle of wine that's identical to an, a cheaper bottle of wine, the expensive one tastes better. I I think that the science will is there's evidence to that, and I think the science will will eventually show that you know your brain makes that bottle taste better. Um, I don't think you can make grape juice like taste you know like some really expensive bottle of wine, but if there's a little wiggle room, your brain will add the extra pleasure, the extra. Um, this dopamine is, is, is a reward drug that makes you feel more happy about the thing you've just done, but also all the subtle chemicals involved in, in the, the taste experience. There's no question that you are tasting something better, uh, I, in my mind. And so, and all it is is the price. Now that, that price signifies a lot though, right? Like it's, it's telling you, um, so many little subtle signals and, and that's, that's something that, that is easy to sort of play with in this realm. Uh, and the other one is, of course, brands that have worked really, really hard to create um, a certain image. Coca-Cola being the most obvious. Coca-Cola always loses to Pepsi in blind taste tests, but it always wins when it's not blind. Yeah. You know, not yeah. always, but, you know, it's, it's, sure. it's so common that we, you know, there's really no denying that, when you, when you enjoy Coke, your part of what you're enjoying is the can. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and I, I think that's real. I mean, people say, "Oh, you know, you know, you're lying to yourself." No, I think your brain might actually be making that thing taste better. Uh, and I think there's a, I, I think there's there's a lot of evidence that's building on that 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 your brain will actually make things taste better because it doesn't want to be wrong. And so yeah. when it has an expectation, it'll just fill in the gaps. Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, and that leads to the next question around. You know, the reverse, you know, conversely, when, you know, you feel like you're wearing something cheaper, you feel like you're driving a cheaper car, you don't know that the brand, your experience. So the nocebo effect. Break down for us and share with us a bit about the the sibling of placebo, the nocebo. <laughs> the ugly, ugly stepson or yeah. ugly step or whatever. Yeah. Um, so nocebos in the lab, again, you know, you're taking these things in the lab, which are, which are being studied, uh, very carefully, you know, on, on, you know, and with pain and with, with, uh, stomach problems. And you're trying to like apply these things, these much more complicated experiences. So in the lab, a nocebo experience is, um, is when, uh, you expect more pain and someone doesn't, you know, it gives you the exact same pain you got before, and then but you feel more pain. You rate it 
stronger. Um, and, and this applies to pretty much any time you have negative expectations. And I, I, in the book, I sort of expand this looking at um, sort of superstition. And eventually I even get myself cursed as a way to understand like how your expectation would change your experience in a negative way. And I think we've all heard of like mass hysteria and these different things where people expect something bad to happen and, and with no trigger, you know, their experience gets a lot worse. And so the question would be, well, how does nocebo um, uh, affect someone's um, someone's marketing experience? I'm reminded of uh, who's the guy who had those, uh, those those inexpensive basketball shoes. He was a, um, a professional basketball player who created a line of cheap basketball shoes that were really actually pretty good, and he used them in the NBA. And but they're really they're meant to be sort of affordable. Uh, they're like fifty bucks or something like that. And I forget the guy's name, but um, but he had a lot of trouble selling them because uh, and you know they weren't bad shoes. They certainly the difference between those and Air Jordans, you know, probably wasn't even registered by the average consumer. But that brand and that sense that you're buying something cheaper, you know, that you only paid fifty bucks for these shoes, um, it affects performance and it and it certainly affects you know, a happiness, you know, I mean, you, you look, you look at some of these chemicals that are involved in placebos and a lot of them uh, are tied to well-being, tied to rewards that, you know, how we see the world, serotonin's a big one. Um, and you start messing with those things, you know, expectations. We, we think of these things as like, well, you just have to s- tell yourself, you know, that it's not happening. It's not that easy. These things are really deep and you can't just make yourself happy with something that, has been conditioned over your whole life to expect something that's cheaper to be, to be, uh, to be worse. And then suddenly it's like, Oh, I bought this cheap thing and now I should be happy with it. The same way I would be at double the price. Um, and that's just not the way your brain works. I mean, you know, you can't overcome that entire lifetime of experience by snapping your fingers, even if it's the same shoe, you you can't just do that. These are powerful things. And these are things that bring down multi-billion dollar drugs because when the placebo or the nocebo effect uh, are too high with a drug, you can't tell if they work. And, you know, billions of dollars go to waste. And, you know, these aren't small effects. These are big things. Absolutely. You argue in your book that uh, we're, we're more wired for fear than for relief. Is this because fear helps us to ensure survival more? Why, why is that the case? Yeah, so this is the thing about nocebo effects. We don't know a lot about them. They're hard. I mean, if you take the take Parkinson's disease, you know, I can give someone a, a pill and tell them it'll make their Parkinson's better. And if it's a placebo, I can do that. And and chances are their Parkinson's will get better because Parkinson's is very placebo prone. I can't give someone a pill and tell them it'll make their Parkinson's worse. Like that's just not right. You can't you can't do that. Sure. So there's a lot of studies you can't do with nocebos um, because they're just really unethical. Um, so, uh, but what we know a few things about them, and one of the things we know is that they seem to be easier to create, and they persist longer than placebos, which is another way of saying that fear is sort of more powerful than hope. And you know, I know there's a scientist out there right now who's rolling their eyes, but that's that's what we're talking about, like at a very basic level. So the question would be, why would that be? Well, um, you know, off the cuff, talking to experts about why this might be, you know, a lot of people say, well, if, you know, you line up a bunch of people, uh, cavemen, and they're eating mushrooms, uh, and the one who's very, very cautious and afraid, he might go hungry because he won't eat those mushrooms. And everyone else eats well, but then on that, you know, 
fourth or fifth or sixth day, you know, someone gets one of these, you know, people with a lot of hope gets the wrong mushroom and dies. And while that other one, the fearful one, he might be, he might be uh, hungry, but he'll live. You know, fear keeps you alive in, in a lot of ways. And that would explain why fear. I mean, just look at the news. Look at the news. You know, like fear-based headlines do way better than hope-based headlines. And there's probably a very strong reason for that. And it also applies to nocebo effects. So when, you know, when, when, when they've done experiments where they sort of mix, they, they give you an expectation and then they take it away and they give it back, which is, they get really complicated, but they're very interesting. What you see is these nocebo effects, they hang around in your brain. These negative expectations hang around and, and, and they persist. Um, and, and that makes sense. I mean, we're, we're fearful creatures. The, the problem is, is it's hard to understand these things more effectively without doing really, uh, twisted and terrible experiments. Um, so it, but yeah, I think when you look at marketing as well, you probably, you probably see businesses that suffer from that once you have a negative expectation of a brand. Um, it would make sense that that would be very hard to change. Got it. You know, and I think that's important for, you know, brand uh, brand leaders to be very conscious of the fact that if if your consumer starts to really fear you on some level or you really sort of struggle with, you know, expectations, that's going to impact their relationship. You know, I want to you know, I want to talk about the power of storytelling. I mean, when, you know, a brand is ultimately, you know, evolves into some sort of story, what are some storytelling sort of uh, techniques in terms of how that sort of impacts, you know, a potential brand? So that's, that's a great question. Storytelling, um, just to catch your listeners up, uh, storytelling is a big part of placebo creation. It's, it's a big part of what we do in in medicine, you know, when, when someone explains to you what's going on in your body, there's a lot of storytelling. It's also a big part of uh, traditional medicine, which relies heavily on placebo, but there's very strong storytelling. I just spent um, a, a couple weeks uh, traveling around through the mountains of Mexico with the PBS NewsHour uh, on, a, on a show all about this, sort of how traditional healers use storytelling. Um, so uh, it depends uh, if we're talking about a good story or a bad story. I mean – um, I mean, on the bad side, I still can remember, and I don't even remember the details, but I know that Tylenol had a, had a horrible, uh, experience in the eighties, I think it was with, um, misbranding or something like that. Like there's this horrible thing that happened with Tylenol and there's this horrible thing that happened also with Jack in the Box. And I will always remember the Jack in the Box had like they had some like terrible salmonella outbreak or something like that. And I'll remember that forever because these things, there's this storytelling that happens in your mind about this brand and then it gets attached to that. Whereas I may not remember all the good things that happened with, um, with some of these, these products. But when it, the one where it really comes down for me is, um, and I, I do this, actually one of my, some of my first work was with uh, sustainable fishing, looking at restaurants that claim to be, that have sustainable fish. Uh, the same could be true for, you know, cruelty free, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, shoes or, you know, the, the, the blood free diamonds and things like this, you know, and, and there's a lot of these claims made and they really do affect, um, the, the person's experience positively. Now, in my research, what I found with the, with the fishing and what's certainly true for the diamonds and a lot of other things is a lot of these claims are bunk. You know, a lot of people, there's no one really enforcing these things in the United States. People will say something sustainable, you know, you get this sustainable, salmon, you know, fresh sustainable salmon in the middle of the winter from Alaska. And you're like, wait a minute, 
you know, <laughs> what boat is out there right now in the winter? Like, it's January. Sure. No one's sending salmon down from Alaska, exactly. trust me. Uh, and there's even a story in the New York Times where this, this, this guy was looking at this, you know, this, this box that said farmed Atlantic salmon. And the guy said, you know, on the, on the, on the, the advertisement, they said, you know, fresh Alaska salmon. And someone's like, look, you know, it says right there, farmed Atlantic salmon. And the guy's like, are you going to trust me or are you going to trust the box? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm going to trust the box, man. You're lying to me. But that, but that experience that you're getting, you're doing something good. That's the storytelling. As you know, there's this, you know, indigenous tribe of people and they, made this thing by hand and you know and everyone got paid enough money to support their family and they're bringing this community up and now you're wearing it on your feet um you know does that you know that 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 shoe or that diamond you know does that affect the way you see that experience no question it does no question you look at your shoe and maybe it's even more comfortable with because of the storytelling that went into it now i'm not saying any of this stuff is bad we're good. I'm just saying this is how we are. Yeah, this you is, know. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's like coffee. Yeah. You go to a Starbucks or whatever. I mean, they're telling you that the farmers of certain coffee, we took care of them, and then people drink the coffee with a level of pride, a heightened sense of contribution, and they feel more relevant. And you know, all these storytelling. That's that's why I wanted you to break down that placebo, the relationship between that how what happens with the story, what happens in the brain with the placebo effect, and you know. At the end of the day, it's interesting, you know, Samsung, on the other hand, is employing almost the nocebo effect, you know, sort of teasing Apple users, you know, <laughs> making them seem like a little bit backward, et cetera. You know, do you think that's you think that's a sustainable strategy? I, you know, again, I'm not a businessman, but yeah, from the brain's perspective, if you can, you know, you have to be careful you know, there's always a second politics, right? Like no one wants to be the one caught, you know, caught throwing dirt. But yeah, if you can create. My, from, from what I've, you know, read and, and, and the work I've done, if you can create a negative expectation for your competitor, I, I would bet that, and I would bet that someone's done this research and has not published it because it's, it's behind, you know, locked in some vault, um, that you, it would be more effective than, uh, than necessarily creating a positive expectation for your own brand. Wow. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no question. And, and, you know, and when you look at, you look at a lot of these sustainable brands and things like that. Uh, I guarantee, you know, I, I was actually contacted by NOAA, the National uh, Atmospheric Ocean uh, Atmospheric uh, Association uh, Administration. Sorry, um, after my story came out, and they have no way to police um, uh, whether or not something's sustainable or not. They, they can barely police whether or not it's the fish that's being claimed that it is. You know, like you're eating red snapper and it's some other totally different fish. That you know, no one's no one's keeping track of that. So uh, I guarantee, you know, I mean, I think 70% of the red snapper people eat is not red snapper. Um, and so, uh, you know, but that experience still happens, you know, and, and so, you, you know, and, and if you could create a negative, you know, a negative expectation for the other, another brand, these would be powerful, powerful tools for, uh, <laughs> for competing. I don't know if it'd be ethical. I don't know yeah. if I'd right. Someone do that. Well, politicians oh. use this strategy all the time, right? Politicians use Who's this that? all the time. Politicians. Oh, yeah. You know who else does this? Another area that's just being started to look at, or people are just starting to look at, is athletics. And um, there's a, a guy named uh, uh, Chris Beatty in, in, in England who's doing like pretty much the only work on this. And uh, and he was talking to this this uh, professional 
famous runner who you wouldn't tell me his name, but you know he's really well established. Everyone looks at him you know, at these track meets, or the, you know these, these these running meets, and he uh, and he'll walk around before the the, the 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 race, and he'll look at someone's shoe. People respect him, obviously. So he'll look at someone's shoe and say, "Hey, which shoes are you using? Oh, you're using those shoes. Oh, that's that's an interesting choice. I, I would not have used those shoes. No, that that'll be that'll be great. That, that'll be a great shoe. <laughs> no, you'll be fine." Wow, that's I, I'm excited to see you run, you know. And it's like the guys looking at his shoe, going like, "What? <laughs> like, what did I? Oh, I mean, wow. like, shoes are a big deal for these guys." And you know, and and what the theory is is that um, that anxiety and expectation might take up as much room in in, in performance as performance enhancing drugs. Remember that there are illegal performance enhancing drugs that have not outperformed placebos. And so that they're illegal, you can't use them, but no one's shown that they work. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it works the opposite ways. And of course, you know, this is a long held practice in, in, in like baseball. You know, if you want to psych someone out, there are, uh, you know, thousands of ways to get inside someone's head. Um, I think it's more interesting in things like cycling and, and, and running where, you know, there's, it's just, it's just physical performance. Like it's just, how far you can push your body. And what you find is that you do see a boost, like in just how long someone can ride a bike just based on their expectations. If you lie to them and tell them you're giving them steroids, this is an experiment that's been done a number of times, and give them a placebo, you will see performance that they could not otherwise do. Um, and that, I think, you know, I mean, it's the same game. <laughs> it's where you're, sure. you're creating real change in people. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Eric, I have to tell you, you you have a great ending to your book, and I really love the, you know, as a writer myself, I appreciate when when I read, I usually read with two hats on, and you know, after I really enjoyed the book and got to the end, I put my other hat on and tried to learn from the structure and how your publisher and how you guys came together and closed the book, and uh, I love the idea that you closed the book about how all of us are gullible. Just unpack that a bit. That's um, <laughs> that's good. I'm glad. I'm really glad you. I'm really glad you got to the end. I'm really glad you liked it. Um, I mean, gullible is one of those words we actually talked about a lot because it's it is a really negative word, and I I wanted to bring it in earlier. I, want, I like the word a lot, and uh, and it and it you know it was something that really I didn't think you know it wasn't appropriate to bring it to the end until you can really understand that this is these are fundamental properties. Suddenly, gullible doesn't sound so bad. Like this is we have so many value judgments on someone's suggestibility, you know? Um, I mean, uh, like if they're, they're somehow weak, if they're suggestible and gullible is like that word that ties that all up. And really it's ridiculous. And this is who we are. Like anyone who thinks, you know, I always love when people come up to me with, you know, with these, these, uh, like some sort of, Oh, acai berries or some sort of new health thing. Like, Oh, look, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not gullible or anything like this, but this stuff really works. You know, this stuff really works. And it's like, okay, first of all, you are gullible. And so am I. And so is she. And like, we're all gullible creatures. Don't start that way because already you're lying to yourself. Yeah, you can we see that gullible. with, with, uh, with MTV's punked. Everyone thinks you will never punk me. Right. Exactly. And it's like, you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta step into this game knowing you know, that you are not the only one who can resist this stuff. Like, it's not like the whole world is, susceptible and you're somehow not like that's just you know and, and i think this this also applies to politics where you have these people who think like 
I am a, you know, I'm a really, you know, thoughtful reader and I read these things and I'm very careful and, and I believe the things I believe in. I, I can't be led astray. I can't be fooled by, by some hack job. Well, of course you can. Good storytelling, uh, you know, carefully chosen facts. They work on all of us. And so I think too many people won't admit that, 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 that they're gullible. And, and once you do, you start seeing these things and, and maybe you can help avoid them, but also, Sometimes you want to go for a ride, you know, like if, if, if I can get rid of chronic pain in my knee, I will take that gullible like pill. I'll do it. You know, sometimes you want to you want to ride those brain chemicals and just see where they take you. And some of these things, many placebos are, are temporary, but a lot of them may be long term or even permanent. You know, to be, that, and this is a big question right now that people are looking at. And I, I think, um, you know, first step is to say, look, we're gullible. There's just no way I'm not perfect. And I am certainly not the only person in the world who has a perfect view of it. Like that's, that's not me. You know what, Eric, I was in, I was in Zara recently. I mean, you know, one of the things that I find phenomenal about this sort of fast, cheap fashion is that I think they play on our gullibility. You know, I looked, Mm -hmm. I noticed something that I found very intriguing is that I think they just experiment and just, they have extra fabric and they believe that people will just wear anything. Like I found uh-huh. there was a suit, a shirt, a pant and some other like uh belt all made out of the same fabric. And because of my sort of studies and my, you know, undergrad around fashion, retail, etc., I realized that what they did was they said they looked around and said, we've just got a whole lot of extra fabric. What can we do with this? And our consumers will buy it. So consumers yeah. can be very gullible and brands can almost exploit that. And I think there's obviously there's moral concerns and judgment. But at the end of the yeah. day, you kind of have to know what areas are your consumers gullible in. Because I can imagine in Mexico City versus L.A. versus Lagos and Nigeria, that gullibility will change across different markets, right? You bet. You bet. I mean, these things are so culturally um Connected, you know, these things are, um, you know, I mean, for instance, in, in some countries, McDonald's is considered a very, uh, upscale restaurant. Like you are attaching yourself to this, you know, this Western, um, you know, ideal. And, and it's like this, this, you know, I am someone who goes to McDonald's just like, you know, Americans. And I don't know if this is still true, but this is, you know, about 10 or 15 years old, uh, that, you know, that, that people would have these experiences. And of course we go to McDonald's have a whole different experience. Um, and, and it's also more profound than that. I, um, after my book came out, I was actually invited to go and speak to, uh, I, I guess we'll say a, a shoe company that will remain nameless because, uh, <laughs> I, I guess that, I, it was just so fascinating. I had this conversation and they, uh, and I was speaking to the, the, the segment of the company that does the really sort of cutting edge work, like looking ahead 10 years, like what are shoes going to look like in 10 years and trying to create these sort of, you know, you know, really the creative side of, of these shoemakers. And I was talking to this guy uh, and he said, you know, um, we can't really design a better shoe. Like there's, 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 you know, I was curious why they had me come in. Like why do you have some random, you know, psychologist, <laughs> psychology, you know, science writer come in. He said, well, you know, we really can't design a better shoe. Like we have, we have engineered the shoe as best as we can and we can add a couple of things but like it's really nothing much we can do what we can change is people's expectation of the shoe and some of that is very physical like they'll they'll create sensory tactile experiences like on your heel like a high like a high top shoe doesn't really do much to secure your ankle but it does remind you that your ankle is there you know they sort of you know and and his question and their question is 
can we actually increase performance by just making the shoe feel like it should perform more or better just by the tactile experience? And, and, you know, I think this goes for a lot of different clothing, different things. I mean, like you can't really make, we've, we've, we know how to make very warm clothing. We know how to make very, you know, effective clothing. And it's not as expensive as it used to be. So now there's like all of these other judgments that really, you know, creating expectations, playing in the realm of expectation is really where it's at for a lot of this stuff, for shoes. Um, and then of course for clothing, you add a whole other layer because there isn't as much performance. You know, you're not trying to make people run faster or feel like they're running faster. You just want to make them feel good about themselves. So you really get into these things, um, very quickly. And I think, uh, I think that I, I don't even think this is new. I think I, I think people have been have really been working this, and if you look carefully, you can see it a lot. I think people are thinking very consciously about it. Certainly, we've been doing it for a long time, but I think sure. now we're thinking very consciously about it. Give the give a brand director who's listening a final tip around storytelling. Is there any sort of strategic sort of thought you'd like to leave us with in terms of? You know, re- really sort of leveraging the power of the placebo effect. Is, are there certain things that need to be in a story? Are there certain sort of uh, concepts or framing of a story that are more effective? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, there there are there are a few of them, and 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 I could uh, you know I could definitely pick apart a couple. But I think the most in, in the research, the most exciting, and this is not going to be new to anyone, is uh, the best way to pump up a placebo effect is to um, is through peer pressure. Uh, you know, you can actually, you, there's actually drugs you can give someone that simulates peer pressure, the experience of having people around you. And, you know, as you take this drug and, uh, like vasopressin and, um, and you feel more placebo effect. Uh, so that, you know, and this actually goes for addiction too. You know, I think this is also in the placebo world, getting people around you, getting, getting that confirmation from other people is hugely powerful to creating expectations. Uh, and this, they, these great experiments where they, they have fake people, you know, adding their two cents and it really changes people's experience in a real way. So that, that's a big one. Um, uh, and then, uh, the others are, uh, you know, they're just go to a, a, a proper, um, quack, you know, a proper snake oil salesman, <laughs> someone who's really, <laughs> really fooling their customers and just see how they work, which I spent a lot of time doing in my, for my book and just see how they operate. And, and these guys, these women and men really know how to, how to use all of these levers better than I could ever describe, you know, in any culture, pick your culture. But these folks really know there's people out there who, who passed down these traditions of, of tapping into expectation for a long time. <laughs> wow, absolutely. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I encourage everyone to you know, actually follow you on social media. You've got a great sort of social media personality as well. Just to sort of remind everyone where they can find you uh, and find your work. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, ericvance.com is uh, where, you know, sort of there's a catalog of everything I do. Um, and uh, I, I've that's probably the best way I've written for National Geographic, Scientific American, um, and uh, a number of other yeah, national outlets. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Times. Um, but yeah, it's, um, you know, or suggestibleu.com, you know, or follow me on, at Eric Vance, uh, on Twitter. It's just at Eric Vance. Yeah, so, Eric um, with a K. And, re- with a K. and I love hearing from people, like hearing people's stories, uh, you know, whether it be marketing or health or any of these things. You know, I've heard some amazing stories since this book came out, and it just it blows me away how ubiquitous this stuff is. 
Thanks so much, Eric, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please rate the show on whichever podcast platform you're listening, leave a message, and lastly, share with someone you care about. Until next time. Cliffcentral.com